Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on our radio station. This week we speak with film composer Hans Zimmer. My 13-year-old teenage arrogance always went, why am I hearing an orchestra when I'm in space? It's like, like isn't, that, isn't that all wrong? So we build instruments. Plus, we meet one of the UK's most exciting bakers. It was never intended to be a business. It was kind of a means to an end when I was struggling to find a job. But also, it's wild because that was such a different time and the landscape of British food has just changed so much since then. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Now, the sci-fi blockbuster Dune Part 2 is in cinemas today. The epic visual storytelling of the movie is matched by its otherworldly soundtrack. The man responsible is the German film score composer and music producer Hans Zimmer. Here he tells Monaco's Robert Bound about the first time Dune director Denis Villeneuve floated the idea of working together on the film. Here we are, we are the small group of sort of renegades making the story that we as teenagers loved. Mm. You know, and we're making it, and the spirit is the spirit of a teenager with the knowledge of people who've been fired by the BBC and <laughs> thought their career was over, who'd fallen on their nose, who'd chuffed their knees, etc., and have the knowledge of how to make a movie. Yeah. You know, but we never stopped having that. that and I th- so I there's think, a sort of boyish, there's, you, can, you, you approach this, and you and Denis both loving the book growing up, yeah. by, by the sound of it, you can approach it with a boyish enthusiasm, yes, even with and, all that and, learning. And here's the thing, you know, I mean, I'm a musician, and the operative word in music is play. Mm. And so that, that playfulness that, you know, is, is part of my job, I saw that appear in Denis, and, and he says he has no musical talent. You know, and then, do you see Maestro? You know, yes, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and there's that, that fabulous scene where, you know, he conducts Mahler's second yeah. at Eli Cathedral. That's right. And I'm looking at it, and I'm not looking at Bernstein or Bradley Cooper acting as Bernstein. I'm seeing Denis. Right. In amongst us musicians, because, you Conducting know, I'm seeing... You first violin? And he's the conductor, you <laughs> yeah. know, he's absolutely the conductor. He's absolutely, you know, part part of the band. And yeah. that's how it needs to be. That's how it should be, you know. And so tell us, you, you, love, the, you love the book. Fortunately, you and Denise share many things in common, you're good friends, but you love the book by the sound of it growing up. What was, I was the what image person, was in your head, I was head, the first I wonder. person on it. Right. It was right. it was this weird thing. We, 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 we I can't remember why we, we were at Warner Brothers and we were standing on the Warner Brothers lot and we did, I think we were waiting for a car or something. And he very quietly says to me, have I ever heard of a book called Dune? And I think, you know, like these little dogs that get really excited and sort of <laughs> jump up and down. I think I, be, I became one of those. And I think I scared... He threw you a bone, right? Yeah, I scared him a little bit, um, you know, with my enthusiasm. And, you know, that I really, really, really knew the mm-hmm. book, you know. Yeah. So, so, in fact, we were talking about this earlier. Um, I never... He on purpose never showed me the script because he wanted me to retain the purity of knowing the book, you know, and never being influenced by 
by, yeah. you know, by, by so you're you're kind of reading you're, you're going back to the original text in yeah, your I'll, ideas. Yeah, then. yeah, I was the you know as, as as the pretentious musician would call it the urtext. I like yes. that. Though. I like that. Yeah, what some yes. um, and so so did you react to rushes? Did you 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 didn't read the script until right at the end of the process because it's a very organic no, 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 thing, no, no, isn't no. it? Yeah, no. Well, the first one, you know, when we were in the we started. We started and then COVID hit, mm. and so suddenly, um, <laughs> suddenly things became. Do you have? I, did you have too many or not enough ideas when COVID hit? I wonder. I oh, expect I, it's the I, former. No. All right. So suddenly, my <laughs> studio moved into my my sitting room, and mm. um, which is right next to my daughter's bedroom. And sometimes at like five thirty in the morning, she'd be like coming and going. Daddy, do you think? Do you think you could just play something else and a little quieter? <laughs> I have exams today, you know. But the score is basically my band, the band I tour with, the band I love, the mm. people I. So it's not an orchestra, obviously not an orchestral mm-hmm. score. I always, I always thought that was a, you know, my thirteen-year-old teenage arrogance always went. Why am I hearing an orchestra when I'm in space? So, right, you know, yeah. it's like, like, isn't that isn't that all wrong? So we build instruments. I mean, I have a friend. Kubrick's got a lot to answer for with choosing. Uh, yeah, the the blue Danube, <laughs> and you know, and, yeah, uh, yeah, I know, but he, but God, did he give us a gift? Oh yeah, you know, I mean, it's really interesting because uh, obviously, in sp- you know, you know I, in space, I, no one can hear you play anything. I know, no, no, <laughs> but but uh, you know, obviously, I thought a lot about. Kubrick in 2001, not mm. not so much for this film, but for Interstellar, for instance. Mm-hmm. And actually, you saying this just now at this very moment suddenly makes me go, you know what? What? Why? What I think he did, what, why he picked the, that music, because he needed to, to figure out how to show a real human element with it within right. his story. Yeah, because I mean, this film. I'll look at you know what we did. I mean. We finished the first film, and I just carried on writing, knowing... So I understand. Now, this is great. I love the infectious... Let's call it Hans Zimmer's infectious enthusiasm. <laughs> you can't turn off the tap. I can't turn <laughs> off the tap. I can't turn off the tap. And we weren't greenlit, right? So mm. it's just, it's just, it's just, you know, like tenacity. It's like, okay... So I they know, get that for free, I know, right? I know they're going to make, <laughs> let us make the next movie. So I kept yeah. on writing, and... and, and as Denis will tell you, like uh, six months in, he phones me and he goes, you know, the movie has been out for six months. You can stop now. And I'm going, no, 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 no. And now a highlight of a conversation with our panelists on the Monocle Daily about satirical magazine La Bougie du Sapeur, published since 1980 in every leap year. I will ask you, first of all, Latika, as somebody who came up on the absolutely merciless deadlines of daily newspapers... Are you are you a fan of like a, a four year lead time? Absolutely, <laughs> sign me up. Anyone that wants to pay me to work once a, uh, every four years, I am here for you. I'm your girl. I, I, I you quite could write novels at that time. <laughs> and, you know, this well, actually, no, no, come on, that's not how it would work. We've all been journalists. We would get our commission, say it's due four years from now, and, and we do. And, yes, <laughs> exactly. Oh, no. and three years and three hundred and sixty-four days later, we'd be thinking, Christ, I should make a start on that. Um, but there, there is kind of an inbuilt brilliance, I think, oh, uh, to superb. the business model, Somnath, in that nobody is going to remember setting up a direct debit four or eight or twenty years ago. 
ago, people are just going to be thinking, oh, what was that for euros? Oh, whatever. You can find 200,000 people who'll do that. You are made. Wow. Yeah, I didn't think of that. I mean, is, do they allow online debits and stuff? Because it's not available I, I, online. In a very French way, they might someone might be sitting there taking cash. Uh, I am told by Carlotta in the production booth, you can subscribe for 100 years for 100 euros. Oh, yes, euros. yes, yes, I did read that. There you Credit go. card expired. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate to bring in the details. You, you, you leave it to your progeny. <laughs> this, is the, this is the thing. I think they get the money up front. This is kind uh, of... This is kind of brilliant. But there is, I think... Son, I give you nothing else, but I give you a subscription of... (laughs) But but there is, I think, um, something here about... You know, regular listeners to Monocle and regular readers of Monocle and who wouldn't be either of those things will understand that we are big fans of the idea of the print publication. And there is here this kind of, it strikes me, a demonstration of two things. One is the power of print. People like it. People look forward to it. They like it arriving through their letterboxes or picking it off the newsstand. But there is also, and I will put this to you, Latika, there's something of the power of kind of a running gag and i don't know enough french to be able to assess whether the humor in la bougie du sapeur is actually funny (laughs) or not but it does it does strike me that two of the magazines i subscribe to which are the british journals private eye and viz i have essentially been been reading the same jokes in both of them (laughs) for about 30 years each and yet I would miss them if they weren't there. You get people hooked. You get them to feel like they're part of a club. They will keep coming back. Some Somewhere in that, Andrew, I think there's a definition of insanity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you described him. <laughs> uh, very, very, very possibly. Um, I, I did want to ask you both just finally, though, if, if neither of you have, and I'll ask you first, Somneth, if you've never worked on a four-year lead time, what is actually the longest gulf you can remember between being commissioned something and it actually appearing in print. Not a book like your fine novel. 13 years. 13 years. Red River, available now, which took 13 years. 2010. Uh, but because book deadlines are a whole other yes. thing, everybody knows that. But have you ever like written something that took so long to get published that you completely forgotten you'd written it? Gosh, no, that hasn't happened. <laughs> but but there, are, there are commissions, which has been about six years, and I'm still writing them. But Andrew, just it's the, far more often than yes, six it's, years when I still haven't been paid. <laughs> <laughs> but on the print front, Andrew, from I just had my fiftieth birthday, and as a birthday gift, my wife brought in the Guardian and the Times, Times just to have a poke at me, and said coffee, and you can read all morning. So you know, just having something in print, that, as that, you say, that, that is a heck of a birthday gift a as huge well. Gift. That, that 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 betrays an incredibly insightful understanding of the needs, wants and desires of the middle-aged man. You, you, oh, it's, it's like, I want the newspapers, a cup of coffee and to be left alone for a couple all of hours. Morning, all yeah, morning. That, that's a magnificent gift. I know. Um, Latika, have you ever run across the very long gap between submission and publication? Only on my book and it was only my end because my commission was 2010, same as you, Somnath. Uh, it wasn't published till I think 2015. Oh, I beat you. You, square, square. you did, you did. <laughs> and I was a little ashamed to, to admit that until you came out with your lead time. So thank you very much. Uh, and would you just like to mention the title of that book? While oh, you're it's here? called From India with Love. Um. It's about being adopted from India. There you go. And now we have a highlight from the Foreign Desk Explainer. After the Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammad Ishtaye announced his resignation, Andrew Muller looks at the future of the Palestinian Authority and whether it has any hope of governing Gaza and the West Bank. 
The resignation earlier this week of Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Steyer and his entire government may have prompted an amount of mirthless wisecracking among his fellow citizens as they professed shock at the news that they had a government. With due respect to the difficulties of governing a territory which is not a universally recognised state and is substantially occupied by a largely hostile neighbour, the Palestinian authority in which Steyer served has not impressed its constituents. According to polling late last year by the Palestinian Centre for Policy and Survey Research, around 80% of Palestinians considered the Palestinian Authority corrupt, and north of 60% thought the PA more a liability than an asset and or want it abolished. The PA's overall leader is President Mahmoud Abbas, a doddering crook who at 88 is one of few world leaders entitled to address his US counterpart Joe Biden as Sonny. Abbas is now 19 years into what was supposed when he was elected to be a four-year term. Other recent polling suggests that fully 92% of Palestinians want Abbas to quit. Of that remaining 8%, it would be fascinating to see how many supporters would be left if you discounted those to whom Abbas is related. Nevertheless, Abbas appears regrettably intent on remaining in post, so this explainer will address not only the president's reasons for staying, but the prime minister's reasons for going. Whenever any politician quits, there is the reason they say they are going and the reason they are actually going. Sometimes they're the same, more often they're not, which is why to spend more time with my family is broadly understood as a euphemism for reporters have been going through my bins and I'm pretty sure I know what they've found. Steyer's explanation for his departure is not really one thing or the other, perhaps because he's not going just yet. In a pretty clearly choreographed move, Abbas has asked Steyer to stay on as caretaker until a new prime minister can be appointed. Steyer waffled vaguely about escalating Israeli-Palestinian violence on the West Bank, which the PA sort of governs, and the war in Gaza, which the PA does not govern, having been forced out in 2007 after an ugly conflict between the PA's dominant faction, Fatah, and Hamas. Steyer also alluded to a new reality created by the recent reduction of much of Gaza to rubble and spoke of the desirability of, quote, the extension of unity of authority over the land of Palestine. Hereabouts is probably the rub, though it remains unclear quite how or when or under what conditions Israel's ongoing assault on Gaza will end, someone will have to govern Gaza once it does. 
It is unlikely that Israel would tolerate any arrangement that even slightly involves Hamas, assuming anything or anyone of Hamas remains. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's own vision for post-war Gaza, presented earlier this week, calls for administration by what Israel describes as local officials under the aegis of border security provided by Israel. Though Netanyahu is no great fan of the PA either, and though the PA are not mentioned in his plan, nor are they ruled out, and at any rate it is not clear who else there is. Significantly, the United States favours an arrangement by which the PA assumes control of Gaza as part of a broader regional settlement. The theory appears to be that President Abbas will appoint a new Palestinian Authority cabinet, but that this one will be a strictly non-factional conclave of non-ideological technocrats and independent boffins, which is actually not, on the face of it, among the top 10,000 worst ideas floated about the future of the Middle East in recent times. The new Prime Minister seems likely to be Mohammed Mustafa, an economist whose CV includes a long stretch at the World Bank and a short stint about a decade back as Palestine's deputy prime minister. Possibly more pertinently, Mustafa oversaw the reconstruction of those sections of Gaza damaged or destroyed during the 2014 war between Hamas and Israel. A much, much larger task of this kind awaits. Though nobody thinks Abbas is the ideal person to oversee such a process, or indeed to oversee anything which is not primarily about his own entrenchment and enrichment, Abbas appears to be doing that thing of demonstrating willingness to change, short of actual willingness to change, like for example letting someone else have a go. Abbas well understands, however, that though he is polling in single digits inside Palestine, outside Palestine there is little appetite for new leadership, on the grounds that Israel and other interested parties believe that there are worse things than a Palestinian authority which is merely bent and ineffectual. The main reason there has been no Palestinian parliamentary election for 18 years is that Hamas won the last one. Polls consistently suggest that Palestinians' preferred leader, and by a considerable margin, is Intifada-era militant commander Marwan Barghouti, currently serving five life sentences in an Israeli prison. Barghouti is not a member of Hamas. He was affiliated with Tanzim, the paramilitary wing of Abbas's own faction Fatah, though Barghouti and Abbas fell out some while ago. It has nevertheless been speculated that Barghouti's freedom is one of Hamas's conditions for releasing the October 7th hostages they still hold. Re-establishing the Palestinian Authority in Gaza is, like pretty much every suggestion ever floated for calming the region, vastly easier said than done. The people of Gaza are unlikely to extend a warm welcome to what they will see, rightly or wrongly, as an Israeli puppet regime. It may also be quite difficult to find people willing to accept the risks of serving in such a government. Certainly any walkabout President Abbas undertook in Gaza would likely be a short one. But the PA and Abbas is presently all there is, and Abbas well understands the power of being the devil everybody knows. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. And from Comfort Corner we head to Voruma in southern Estonia, where we have arrived to learn more about the region's ancient smoke sauna ritual.
Confacts Petri Bursov was joined by the Estonian director Anna Hintz, whose award-winning documentary, Smoke Sauna Sisterhood, explores the healing power of the sauna. We joined the ritual at a local farm where after eight hours of heating up its old smoke sauna, the sauna master, Edda Veruja, inflated the age-old Estonian ritual. Let's join them. With the beat of her drum and by singing ancient spiritual chants, Eda Veroja marks the beginning of the four-hour smoke sound ritual at the Moska farm in southern Estonia. The sun has set over the snowy hills of Veruma, and we have made our way to the lakeside sauna, guided by the soft golden glow of the lanterns. As we enter the sauna, a subtle scent of smoke welcomes us as we take a seat on simple wooden planks. Using a cup-shaped ladle, Veroja gently pours water onto large hot stones stacked on top of the stove. A warm humidity fills the room in an act that the locals call lona. The smoke sauna tradition in this part of Estonia is thousands of years old and has been recognized by UNESCO as intangible cultural heritage of humanity. It is also the subject of the Estonian director Anna Hintz's award-winning documentary film Smoke Sauna Sisterhood, which tells the story of a group of Estonian women for whom the sauna serves as both a refuge and as a place of healing and forming bonds. Hintz has joined us for today's ritual, and I ask her what it is about the smoke sauna that gives it such strong healing power. This is um, like a safe space where you can really connect with yourself and with actually everything around and feel very alive. That's a place where you can be totally vulnerable, naked body, but also naked soul. For us uh, here, um, smoke sauna spirituality is connected to the bigger spirituality where, for example, we have different understanding of time. Time is not linear, but time is like cyclic. So when you enter a smoke sauna, it's like past and future and present are all there. And for me, it's like entering into this kind of dark cosmic womb that can hold everything where we can share absolutely all emotions and experiences and be heard and seen. I, I know no other place like smoke sauna, really. In the sauna, we rub and purify our bodies with honey, salt and ash, chanting age-old folk songs and spells. In between the sessions, we swim in the icy lake, gazing at the starry winter skies as we let our bodies overcome the initial thermal shock. Some are so overcome with tranquility, others with emotion, that they retreat to the nearby log cabin and the warm glow of its log-burning iron stove 
to sleep and to sip on Veroja's homemade lavender tea. She then enlists the help of her husband Urmas to gently slap our bodies with the sauna whisk made of birch leaves. It leaves a magical scent of forest onto the skin. It's ritual of both physical and mental cleansing, as Veroja explains. My old aunt, uh, my father's side, grandmother's sister, she always said that before you go to sauna, you exhale and you leave all uh, the knowledge and all the desires and all the e- emotions outside. You empty yourself and you step into the sauna like you are born without any expectations, without any thoughts. Uh, and then you start to listen what comes and uh, it makes the sauna. For the people of Veruma, the sauna has always been a part of life, serving sometimes very practical purposes, such as providing the women of these rural communities a clean place in which to give birth, and sometimes more spiritual ones, such as anointing the dead or finding solace in the face of trauma. But sauna has also been a very private matter, even spiritual one. And as such, it was only after it gained the UNESCO status and after the popularity of Hintz's film that the Estonian smoke sauna has become more widely known around the world. I asked Hintz what smoke sauna means to her and why it was important for her to make this film. Like where I really realized that on this earth there is a safe space where absolutely all your emotions and experiences can be shared. And I realized when we give voice to our story and when we give space to hear other stories, other experiences, then there is huge healing power. And that's uh, warmth and that knowledge, that, that deep knowledge inside me of that space. Like I carry it wherever I go. And uh, that that safety and warmth has have carried me through challenges in life also. And I realized that this is very special. And uh, that's why I also wanted to do this film, to share it with humanity. Because as humans, all of us, we need this kind of space. Four hours have passed and I feel thoroughly cleansed and relaxed. After the ritual, we lie on rug-lined wooden benches of the dressing room in silence, drinking herbal tea, some of us drifting in and out of consciousness. Am I dreaming, or is this all real? I ask myself. Through the smoke sauna ritual, I have connected with something ancient and eternal. It's a very powerful feeling and one that grounds you in a way that not much in this world can. For Konfekt in Veru, Southern Estonia, I'm Petri Burtsov. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com.
You are with the curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monocle Radio, and I am Fernando. Now, in a year of elections, the fear in many nations is that their publics have lost faith in democracy and are increasingly turning to the extremes, to authoritarian strongmen. A new survey of voters in 24 countries by the Washington-based Pew Research Center finds that most respondents are frustrated with their own leaders and institutions, but grudgingly acknowledge that representative democracy is still the best form of government. Monaco's Chris Chermak spoke with Richard Weick, Director of Global Attitudes Research at Pew. He began by asking Richard what surprised him most about the survey's findings. I think that one of the things that really stands out to me is how frustrated a lot of people around the world are with political elites and with their elected representatives. A lot of this report, I think, deals with the theme of representation. People say that they like representative democracy, they think it's a good way to govern their country, but they're very frustrated with how it's working. And uh, you know, big majorities in, in most countries say that they don't think politicians care about people like them. A lot of people, especially those in the political center, feel like there's no political party that represents them. So, you know, representative democracy as an ideal is, is still very, very appealing to most people, but they've got problems with uh, how it's working. And they point the finger at political elites and political leaders in their countries for the problems that they see. It is very interesting, that dynamic that you described there, that so many people are dissatisfied with representative democracy. Politicians are out of touch. Political parties don't represent us anymore. And yet they all still say, or, or strong majorities over three quarters say, it is the best option. I mean... Isn't that how a democracy, frankly, is supposed to work? There's something, you know, Churchillian about that. Right. There are probably some some inherent challenges in, in any democracy, right? They're going to cause frustrations for people. But, but you know, I, I do think you see people making some important criticisms here. You know, they, they, they as you said, they do value democracy. They haven't given up on it as, as, as necessarily the best system, you know, that, that's available. But they are frustrated with how it's operating and they feel like their leaders are out of, of touch with them. And, you know, they, they'd like to see, you know, a few things, right? including more diversity among their political leaders. And one of the things that we do in this report is we ask people about uh, whether they'd like to see different types of people elected to office. And, you know, we see, I think, in those findings that people would like to see some changes. Um, you know, they say, at least many people say, they'd like to see more women elected to political office, more young people, uh, more people from poor backgrounds. So, you know, part of the story here is about people wanting to see different kinds of leaders in political office. So different kind of leaders is one aspect. It was also interesting, I have to say, that there were two other forms of government that a majority did approve of, even if it wasn't quite as high as representative democracy. That was direct democracy on the one hand, so basically being involved, you know, as voters in many decisions, but also governing by experts, like a technocratic government. I mean, is that, are both of those, frankly, a sign that on the one hand, we approve of representative democracy, but we are also starting to look elsewhere. We're prepared for other options to try them. 
I think in some ways it, it does highlight the fact that you know people are frustrated with how representative democracy is working in some ways, right? You know, they they want more expertise in government, and uh, we, you know, as you said, in, in many places you've got a majority saying that rule by experts actually might be a good way to govern, and that number's gone up over the last uh, few years. And then direct democracy is, is largely a popular way to govern as well. And you know, I don't think that that means people necessarily thought through how direct democracy would work exactly. But I think that what it reflects is the fact that people want a stronger voice in governing, right? They, they say they're not listened to enough, so they want that more direct voice in making decisions. They want to be empowered. And I think that's part of the reason why you see pretty big numbers in many places saying, yeah, I think direct democracy would actually be a good approach to government. Well, absolutely. And when we do get to the, the sort of autocratic side of things, I mean, how worrying was that for you looking at the data? There is a rise in the willingness of people to have a strong or authoritarian leader, but it's still from a low base. Only about five countries actually favored the idea of a strong leader. That's right. Overall, you know, this notion of a, a strong leader who doesn't really have to bother with you know, parliaments or courts or you know other institutions of government is not popular you know right it, it's not nearly as popular as representative democracy but it it does have its supporters which are you know a notable number of supporters in many countries and in a few places at least it's increased the support for that kind of government has increased since the last time we asked the question back in 2017 so yeah that is something to be concerned about, you know, when you see a rise in support for a more authoritarian approach to government, you know, again, I think what we see quite often is that it's, you know, the dissatisfaction with the way democracy is functioning that can open people up to these non-democratic approaches. So that essentially creates political space for would-be authoritarians to try to take advantage of. And now we have another highlight from Confet Corner. Now, for many of us, there's a certain kind of glamour and romance associated with a lengthy train ride. But nowhere is that more elevated than aboard Belmont's historic British Pullman, the sister train to the Orient Express. In recent years, the luxury hospitality and leisure group has been branching out into the ever-expanding world of immersive entertainment. And starting this year, they've got a whole new passenger experience in the arsenal. Confacts Paige Reynolds went along for the ride and sent us this fly-on-the-wall report. Zigzagging through the throngs of commuters on a Tuesday evening in London's Victoria Station, it all seemed like business as usual. However, the closer I got to Platform 1, the more stolen glimpses of sequins under overcoats I saw. And once the clip-clop of smart shoes was accompanied by swing jazz, I knew I'd landed in the right place. This, my friends, is no ordinary train ride. Welcome to the Carriage Club. A dreamy collaboration between luxury hospitality giant Belmond and private drama events, the eight carriages of this historic British Pullman train host what is billed as London's first cabaret train, though it really is so much more. 
As I stepped inside Minerva, my Greek goddess-named carriage for the night, I was met by a glamorous wash of purple and green jacquard chairs, Edwardian-style marquetry, and a very attentive waiter by the name of Artur, a man who well and truly understood the brief of unlimited Verve Clicquot. Tucked away in a gilded coupe, pondering the first of five courses on offer, I caught up with the train's manager, Adam Hill, who told me a little more about its storied history. So here you are sat in Minerva. This was actually Winston Churchill's favourite carriage. It was one carriage that he very much used to travel on out of personal choice, where he used to go on royal and uh, political arrangements throughout the country. Um, it was also used for the Royal Festival of Britain. So that was a festival that the government put together to bring everyone together to celebrate after World War II, and it was a carriage that he selected to form part of that rake. And it was actually the first carriage that I came on as well. So a little bit of history, I came on for my 21st birthday, Probably, as you can guess, two years ago. Not, not really, but, you know, a few years back, my nan brought me on as a gift, um, and I actually sat in Minerva a few seats back for my first time on the British Pullman, where we had a beautiful afternoon tea and brunch. So, yeah, it's a carriage that's been here in the rake um, for many, many years and can tell many, many stories if walls could speak. He also told me about the Art Deco-inspired five-course menu, expertly crafted by head chef John Freeman. So we have a beautiful prawn and lobster cocktail, something quite old school, something quite chic to start with. We also then introduced the saffron risotto as the intermediate course. We wanted to get some saffron that was locally sourced and managed to find um, a supplier up in Norfolk. We have then the beautiful beef course with a beautiful sort of old school um, twist in the plating. You have the green beans wrapped in the cured meat. So it really creates that element of chicness and classic uh, plating of that era. So something quite unique. And then the barba will be your sweet tooth fix which will be with a beautiful apple brandy and cream and then a beautiful selection of cheese. So something that you have to really be careful is to make sure you save room for cheese. <laughs> Always. Always. It's essential. It's essential. Without further ado, the evening's entertainment began as our host Sammy got the carriage warmed up just in time for burlesque starlet Golden Arrow to take centre stage. Over the course of the evening, eight acts were to slink through the carriages and delight us with their talents. From the card sharps, a wicked sleight of hand, to Lady Lucille's charming ukulele renditions, there was a clever mix of the weird, the wonderful and the somewhat cheeky, which brought a light and playful mood to proceedings. I promised you a little bit of burlesque tonight. Oh, yes. Am I taking my clothes off? You should be so lucky. <laughs> and with every item of clothing this lady takes off, I need you to make a round of applause, okay? Of course, none of this happened by chance. The team at Private Drama Events took direct inspiration from the Devonshire restaurant, an iconic 1920s haunt where all-night gaiety was promised. Adam Blackwood, the company's founder, was next to alight at my table. He gave me a deeper understanding of how the show came together. Woo! 
So it seemed to me, having run a murder mystery on the train and stepped into the 50s, we thought it would be really fun uh, to journey back a little bit further to the 20s and 30s and when uh, nightclub was at its height, height um, in the West End of London. So clubs like the Shim Sham Club, the In Out Club, the Devonshire Club, which was part of our inspiration, and then thought, well, those people just come of an evening and enjoy cabaret. And there were, there's great evidence of people that were doing that, going for having a fantastic dinner. And we thought, actually, it would be great fun if people uh, came on a train. No one's done this before and had a train. What might be the reason that that would happen? And then we, through a bit more research, discovered that clubs kept being shut down in Soho and Mayfair were being raided by the police. So they were always a bit like having to find a kind of raided warehouse where they, where they would take their audience and all the cabaret acts because they were a bit risque. So we thought, well, actually, this might be this idea that they will have been raided by a, uh, by a club in the West End. Where better to find a secret place to put out a cabaret than on a train? So here, all our guests are coming as escapees from the West End. The secret nod, get on the train, and the cabaret goes wild as they move out of London and no one can catch them. So that's the inspiration. As I nipped into the corridor to meander through the other carriages, and it's now rather merry passengers, I caught up with the Brighton Bells, who were readying themselves for their fifth performance of the night. Adorned in gem-encrusted leotards, flapper skirts, opera gloves and headpieces, they gave me a behind-the-scenes lowdown of their mesmerising double act. So we are um, an identical twin dancing duo. So we're going to come out and we're going to do a lovely little dance number, um, but we're also, we're also fighting over the same man. Yes, there's a love triangle going on. And he is on the carriage. Yeah, I've seen him already. The, the sorcerer. sorcerer. And and he's mine, but apparently he's mine actually. Oh right. So yeah, we're going to be acting out a bit of our love triangle that we've got going on. Um, and then yes, we we do a slightly seductive semi striptease, just gloves, skirts, but it's all about the dancing, very vintage flapper esque. Yes. But we are essentially a silent act, like silent movie esque. Um, so a lot of our things that we do is through mime so being very playful uh, with the guests kind of miming to them we have a photo of our love interest the sorcerer Tarek Um, and then we yes we kind of discover that we both have the same love interest and we're furious all in mime (laughs) mime. and the only other way that we communicate if not through mime and gesture is through handwritten notes that we're giving to the guests only some guests, only special guests, are getting handwritten notes. Some of them have got little tell the truth, do a dare, you look fabulous, things like that. Things to just get people more in the mood after we've left. And it's not only the Brighton Bells that weave the audience into their stories. One of the most special things about the Carriage Club is how the passengers become an active part of the show, entwined and enthralled by the acts in equal measure. Just before we pull back into Victoria Station, the sense of escapism I've found for the past four hours really hits home. It's a little hard to put into words what makes the experience so unique, but Adam Blackwood does a rather good job. 
One is the whole sense of romance about travel. And films around trains, Brief Encounter, um, it, it is, or um, 39 Steps, or things that have something happens on a train, or, of course, Murder on the, uh, on the Orange Express. Something happens on a train, your life a bit changes, and you, you come and sit down, you say goodbye to the world outside, and then something happens. Something transforms people. You look out the window, some wonderful act comes and entertains you, and maybe that changes changes your mood and so by the time you return to London you feel a little bit different so it's a sense of escapism and I think the the other thing is that so much of an audience now are looking for an experience the appetite if you think about what's going on in the West End about that kind of immersive experience and so for example the Kit Kat Club the uh, cabaret which is a West End musical but turned into an experience around a found venue or you will find that La Clique show which pops up its show in Leicester square so a lot of those artists we draw that inspiration we create their own acts here that they they only you'll only see these acts in this manner on this train you won't find them anywhere else and that's part of the magic for confect in my finest evening wear i'm paige reynolds We are back with the curator and we have more Paige Reynolds. This time she met Lily Vanilli, one of the UK's most exciting bakers. It's Thursday, so we've got a slightly edited menu from what we'd have on the weekend. Just smaller portions, more like bite-sized stuff. That's baker Lily Jones, a.k.a. Lily Vanilli, bopping around her eponymous East London bakery that's captivated the hearts of sweet treats lovers far and wide since it opened in 2010. She's showing me what's on offer. We've got our sausage roll, which is really delicious Cornish sausage meat, and then we roast bacon lardons inside of vinegar and then put that through the mix. And then we have our veggie version, cheddar, feta and spinach scones, which are really good. Salt caramel brownies. Um, we got some specials today, mini salt caramel chocolate tarts and, and little chocolate cakes. And then we've always got a few layer cakes and, you know, highly decorated cakes on the, on the counter. Vegan brownie. Simple stuff for the week. And then we've got much more range on, on a Sunday and loads of cakes. Behind the nibbles on the front counter, Lily and her team are preparing for afternoon tea at the Theatre Royale Jury Lane. A job they do 363 out of 365 days a year. The talented four-person team delivers up to 300 covers of highly decorative baked goods every day. I slink over to find out more. Hi. Hi. Hello. <laughs> I'm Paige. You must be Paige. Yeah. Lily. Nice to meet you. How's How are you it doing? doing? Good, thank you. Good. Coffee, Good. tea, cake, something. Wow. Have something. Oh, wow. Can I ask you what is going on here? There's like blue little yeah, circles. Oh, these blue molds are chocolate molds. They're like silicon chocolate molds. And I'm just filling them with some tempered chocolate. And we're going to make little baby cherubs. So I'm going to wait for them to set and then I'm going to flip them out. There's a lot going on. So I asked Lily to give us the full lowdown. It's kind of a standard day in the bakery and it's noon. So... At this point, we're baking all of the layer cakes, which will ice for cake orders later on. And while those are in the oven, we're prepping the afternoon tea. So Megan's molding 
our kind of handmade chocolates, which we use in decoration for things, uh, including the tea service. Raker's icing all of the, this is probably about 200 portions of cake, which will go to the afternoon tea. Darren's making sticky toffee pudding, again, like three, 400. We're making salt caramel popcorn, which is really light and crunchy, which we use just as a kind of decoration on some things. So we're kind of in like prep stage of the day. And then once the cakes are cooled, we'll ice and decorate those. And, and that's it. In addition to afternoon tea, Lily and her team open the bakery from Thursdays to Sundays to the public, make a variety of to-order birthday, wedding, or really any special occasion cakes throughout the week, and they also regularly collaborate with major fashion brands and other F&B businesses. It's a highly impressive operation, spearheaded by a highly impressive woman. Over a couple of shrimp empanada at a nearby deli, Lily tells me where it all began. It was the 2008 financial crash and I was just struggling to find work. I was super broke and I had always baked as a hobby and I just started selling cakes to put money on the electric to be able to afford the day to day. And yeah, I've been thinking, I've been reflecting on it a lot because it's been 15 years, but it was never intended to be a business. It was kind of a means to an end when I was struggling to find a job, but also it's wild because that was such a different time and the landscape of British food has just changed so much since then. There were no kind of similar businesses. There were no kind of small, creative, modern bakeries. And I saw that these American brands like Primrose and Hummingbird were about to open in the UK. I was like, maybe it's going to be a thing. And I, I mean, I had no business being there. I didn't have a website. But suddenly I had customers and within six months I was baking for Elton John, like private parties. I had a concession Harrods and a book deal. It kind of was this just like extraordinary thing. An extraordinary thing, and even more extraordinary, that it all began well before Lily had her Columbia Road home. There are another two Lily Vanilli bakeries, but they're rather far from the East London hub. If there's a queue outside the Columbia Road adjacent flagship, the next Lily Vanilli you'll find is located in the Georgian capital of Tbilisi. Lily takes me through how this rather unusual expansion came about. I just got an email out of the blue from a stranger who's now a dear friend and he invited me to Georgia. We spent a week hanging out and then at the end of the week he's like, okay, let's open a bakery together. And the way he pitched the idea to me, he's like, marriage here is like first base. He's like, I already got two ex-wives, you know, he's like 30. And people get married like the old days. They're like, let's get married on Friday. And then they have huge weddings, you know, like 900 person weddings, huge cake, the kinds of weddings which if I did in the UK, we'd be talking about for three years in advance. They'll just rattle them out at the weekend. So anyway, he's like, we have all these weddings and people have multiple marriages in um, their young lives and they're, they're just no great wedding cakes. So he's, he's like, this is a business opportunity. And yeah, it's going well. They're beautiful. The bakery's there. A lot of the same team have worked on, have been on board since the start and they're just doing a great job. And how often do you get to go and kind of see that all in action? As often as I can. I've been twice in the last few months. It's a great pleasure to spend so much time there. Lily Vanilli is arguably as creative and spontaneous with her franchises as she is with her cake designs. It's hard to predict what the maverick baker is dreaming up next, so where does she go to seek inspiration? Back when I started, it would be from the cake shops. You know, I'd go to the cake supply shops and um, there'd be like 13 different shades of metallic edible luster spray and isomalts, which you can kind of sculpt. It's like kind of sculptable, hard candy, 
substance or uh, molds for chocolate or you can make your own molds and you know all these kind of dyes and tools and at the start I was making all these weird sculptures and like experimental cakes and that would be where I would go and but this was all like before Instagram and now obviously the fee's got got hella inspiration but I really noticed lately the kinds of cakes that I get on my feed they're really in the same kind of style as when I started so like bonkers like asymmetrical metallic like flowers sticking out mad and I feel like I've been doing it long enough now to see it go full circle because when I started out I was making these cakes to like rebel against traditional fondant and wedding cakes and da 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 and then in pandemic got really into piping so we were doing like a buttercream version of like regency piping and these kind of 1980s styles and then there's like a wave of like response to that which is all these like deconstructed like weird cakes which is like where I started it's been fascinating to watch it And finally, here on The Curator, origin stories are often subjective and occasionally apocryphal. And when it comes to the birthplace of pop music in America, while many spots could likely stake their claims, a line of five buildings in New York City tend to have consensus as the place where it all began. In Toll Stories this week, Paul Logothetis visits a tiny stretch of one New York street that is celebrated for its place in American music history. Inside a small stretch of drab buildings on West 28th Street in New York City lies the birthplace of American popular music. Tin Pan Alley, as it was coined, transformed the music industry at the end of the 19th century by turning a niche practice for songwriting into a mass production of popular culture. The New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission recently designated these five buildings official Manhattan City landmarks due to their cultural significance. Not only were they important to American popular music, but they were also a key site for the contributions of Jewish immigrants and African Americans, whose works as composers, lyricists, and performers can be traced back to here. From Irving Berlin to Fats Waller to Cole Porter, the composers and lyricists of Tin Pan Alley wrote songs that defined American pop culture from the late 1880s to the mid-1950s. Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, and Fred Astaire all sang music that was created here. George Calderaro is the director of the Tin Pan Alley American Popular Music Project and a longtime preservationist who took a shine to this morsel of American musical history after moving into the Flatiron Nomad neighborhood where this unique piece of history resides. Sheet music publishers congregated and set up business on and around 28th Street because that was the entertainment and cultural center of New York City in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So sheet music publishers set up shop there, not just to create sheet music for the first time. Publishers, songwriters, and performers worked together, and that's why we say it created the modern music industry. And this sheet music was sold not just to performers who were performing down the street or in the many theaters that were in that area in the 20s around Madison Square Garden, but also to the stores, the great big department stores on 6th Avenue, on Ladies Mile. And then also the whole area was full. It had Delmonico's, the first restaurant in New York. It had bedding parlors. It had brothels. It had all of these entertainment venues that all needed music. The name Tin Pan Alley was coined to describe the audible racket of piano music that made this street sound like its namesake, where sheet music boomed and iconic songs like Take Me Out to the Ball Game and God Bless America were published at the turn of the 20th century. 
Calderaro and the Tin Pan Alley Project promote the street's history across Manhattan and its surrounding boroughs through a variety of initiatives like concerts and shows, as well as hosting on-site and online walking tours that pay homage to a street that spawned legendary music composers like George Gershwin and Irving Berlin, and so many more. You could get married and divorced. You could buy a house. You could have your mistress all without leaving 28th Street. So it was a real nexus of community and of the entertainment and cultural district of the area. So it was there until about the 1910s, 1920. And that's when the Broadway theaters moved up to Longacre Square. And that became Times Square. That move uptown left little behind. And walking along West 28th Street, you can't help but wonder just, am I in the right place? You know you have arrived, though, because at the corner of Broadway and 28th Street is a New York City street sign marked Tin Pan Alley. There's a small 8.5 by 11-inch plaque nearby, but it is hard to find hidden behind hot dog vendors or scaffolding, depending on the day. But the physical imprint of Tin Pan Alley is still there to see as you walk 28th Street towards 6th Avenue. There's a series of five Italianate-style row houses that look unchanged from their original build of 175 years ago. Standing across the street and surveying the buildings numbered 47 through 55, it's easy to imagine Thomas Edison up on the roof producing his films, or a copyboy dashing down the front steps and out of the offices of The Clipper, which was Variety Magazine's forerunner. Today, the apartments above are unchanged, while the street-level spots are populated by a variety of unassuming businesses wholesale clothing and fabric stores, a cell phone accessory shop, and a slightly dodgy-looking lingerie spot. According to Calderaro, this ragtag look is essential to maintaining the site's unique historical charm. Thank goodness that people live there because they are what has kept the buildings from being demolished. The residents there have leases. Some of them have long-term leases. Some of them are rent-controlled. Some of them are protected by various city regulations, including the loft laws. So because they could not be easily evicted, because of them, the buildings stand to this day and are largely intact. And it's also interesting, there's a term in preservation called preservation by neglect. As you probably noted, the buildings are rather run down. The owners of them have not invested heavily in them, probably because their tenants aren't millionaires and billionaires and paying exorbitant maintenance fees. But because of this, they haven't invested in the buildings extensively. And because of that, the buildings haven't changed. When you look at the spindles in the railings on the stairways, those are the same ones that Irving Berlin and George Gershwin bounded up and down, you know, every day and all of their compatriots. It's all incredibly intact, which helped to contribute to the landmark's designation. Tin Pan Alley may have been a short blip within two centuries of American music history, but its shabby physical imprint is real, and it was once Manhattan's beating heart of pop culture, until it wasn't. It's even more important to anchor it and to correct, if you will, history or let people know and educate them about the real birthplace of American popular music. And so many people are interested and surprised to discover that it actually is a place. If you Google Tin Pan Alley, one of the top questions that come up is, is Tin Pan Alley really a place? And it really was. Thank you very much, Paul. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week, and thank you for listening. <laughs>